If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is about one-third of the way through your Bible. And we continue this morning reading all of chapter 4, a long passage. It's a, a narrative that holds together, so follow along either on the back of your sermon outline or uh, in your Bible with me. <clears throat> when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring back the stones to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite was at his, who was at his side said, what they are building, even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. <laughs> Nehemiah prays, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the peoples behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, 
And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued to work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, Have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. So far the reading of God's Word. Things are going well. Last week, we got to that that crescendo as as Nehemiah's vision for the rebuilding of the walls uh, takes shape. Remember Artaxerxes, the first king of Persia? It's very sympathetic to the Jews worshiping again in Jerusalem. He says, go, rebuild the wall, and he gives them a blank check. And he gives them access to the lumber yard and to all that he needs. And he arrives back with the cavalry And then he makes that great speech, identifying with the people, saying, I'm one of you. And like Winston Churchill, right? He rallies the people and he says, we will rebuild this wall. God will help us. And it's not just a pep rally. The people rise up and the work begins with faith, with hope, with enthusiasm, and they can see the wall rebuilt and the fortress of God surrounding the temple of God with the worship of God fresh and new again. And then suddenly, you guessed it, opposition arises. Everything was great, full speed ahead, and then opposition arises And there is an attack on the whole enterprise. And this fellow Sanballat and his cronies, Tobiah and Gishan, they get angry. Why? Because they are threatened by the change in the status quo. There's going to be another uh, uh, city, town in our area, and, and things are going to change, and they don't like this, and so they want to discourage God's people from their work. How do we understand this? How do we read this passage and apply it to our lives? I'm sure you understand that when there is warfare in the Old Testament, you have a picture of spiritual warfare for those of us who live in the New Covenant era. This is spiritual warfare pictured for us, and we learn a lot if we pay attention James Packer says that what you see standing behind Sanballat and Tobiah is the devil himself, Satan, whose name means adversary, is hard at work to sabotage the building of the walls of Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ. And we should not be surprised that Nehemiah is going to experience opposition. We see from Genesis 
Genesis 3, Satan tempts Adam and ruins paradise. From Genesis 3 to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, to right in the middle when Jesus Christ comes, there is satanic opposition to the glory of God and to the person of Jesus Christ. He's tempted in the wilderness, and all the forces of hell come against him. And we are told in 1 Peter 5, your enemy, the devil, prowls against the church. And in Revelation chapter 12, Satan and his forces want to see the church destroyed. So this is the first point this morning. We should not be surprised when we see the actions of others, circumstances around us, hostile people making war against God's kingdom. Now, the focus here uh, is on uh, three guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and we first met them in chapter 2, where we are told that when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And now it continues, doesn't it, here in chapter 4, as we see them mock and ridicule those who desire to build the city of God and protect the fellowship of the people of God. They spread lies about them. They slander them. They threaten them. They bring unfounded accusations against them. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. It happens to the people of God in every age, and the world has, the world has a love-hate relationship with the church of Jesus Christ. At some level, we know that the world is grateful for the good work that we do, the love that is shown in our communities, the, the blessings that are spread through us, and they cannot deny it. On the other hand, Jesus told us, there will be persecutions. Do you remember when we studied the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 10, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's the only one of the Beatitudes where he actually is recorded as giving commentary on that Beatitude. And he says, Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's remembering Nehemiah, as well as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the rest. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, everyone who seeks to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, I don't have a persecution complex, but I do take this seriously. And so the church suffers. Mike, if you could give me the PowerPoint. I just last night, I got an email from our friend uh, Barbara Singerman. And remember Jeff and Barbara Singerman in the country of Benin, and we've invested ourselves in the country of Benin, and we, we, you hear us pray for them. Benin is a, is a tiny country right next to Nigeria. Do you know where that is? And, um, and uh, just outside the capital in Cotonou, and I know this area, a woman purchased uh, uh, a, a large plot of land. Her name is 
Alima Zahoon in order to care for orphans and to establish a home, a clinic, and a church for children who are in dangerous situations in Benin. And here's this lady, and you can't really see it very clearly, but she's called the area La Servante. She is the servant. And in the name of Jesus, she's already dug a well there. And there's fresh, clean drinking water. And so people are coming around there. And they built a home for a man to be a guardian of this property. In Africa, you have to, you have to guard your property. And so Barbara sent out an email last m- night saying that this work is going well and people are so happy to have the water and they are eager to see the clinic and the home built for these children and, and this what's called the servant land is becoming populated and people are excited about what is to happen and then last Saturday 12 voodoo men called Zangbito the Zangbito are a group of voodoo worshipers in Benin. And you know Benin is the, the birthplace of voodoo. That's why when we go to Haiti this summer to push back against the voodoo that is there, we are bringing our friend Parfait and Hippolyte from Benin to join our team. You're paying for them to come. But remember our vision was years ago as we started our work in Benin, we want to see people converted in Benin who then will go to the places where the slave ships went through their ports and, and exported voodoo to Brazil, to Haiti, to New Orleans, and for us to send missionaries from Benin to them saying, oops, we made a mistake. <laughs> we sent you the wrong religion. Jesus is better than legbra. Love is better than hate. Hope is better than suspicion. Okay. But you have these, what are called these Zangbeta. And 11 of them came. And what they do is they dress in these, in these uh, uh, stacks, haystack costumes. And if anyone touches them, they will die. They are cursed, and the people are terrified of them. It's, it's, and they whirl around. And they came on last Saturday. And then the next day, Sunday, they 12 more showed up. And they intimidated the guard who was there. They bought a house for the guard who was there. And they warned him, and they were spoiling for a fight. They were trying to provoke him, Barbara said. And they hung their voodoo ornaments in the trees. And so Barbara said, please pray. Please pray. The work was going so well, and now there's opposition. I'm an optimist. I believe La Servante is going to become a powerful agency for the love of God in the lives of hundreds of orphans, that people will be healed in the clinic and people will be converted in their church. But I tell you, they face great spiritual warfare, don't they? And if you remember to pray for these people in Ben, and I hope you will, if God brings it to your mind. But I'm an optimist. I believe the church of Jesus Christ will always move forward, will never perish. But I'm not stupid. I want you to be optimistic, but I don't want you to be stupid either. There will be opposition. Some people say, well, yes, of course there's opposition because the devil hates me. Well, you know, yeah, maybe the devil hates you, but 
Don't take yourself that seriously. Who does the devil hate? The devil hates Jesus Christ. The devil hates the glory of God. The devil hates the praise of the glory of God. And if he can sidetrack you or destroy you or get in your face in some way in order to humiliate or dishonor Jesus Christ, then he will do that. So we are optimistic, optimistic, but we are also, like Paul says, not unaware of his schemes. And there are Sanballats and Tobias and Gishams in every age, aren't there, who want to throw cold water on the people who are on fire for Jesus Christ. So, point number two, point number two is that we should be prepared for attacks. And here, if you study, there's all kinds of assessments of this, but James Packer in his commentary says you need to see here three kinds of attacks. There's psychological warfare, there are physical threats, and there's personal discouragement. And we see all three of these, both in Nehemiah's circle and in the life of Jesus Christ and in the life of the church. This is really true. Sanballat is a master of psychological warfare. What is that all about? Psychological warfare is about destroying morale. You know, you want to destroy, you, you want to you ruin the, the Boy Scouts of America? You try and destroy their morale any way you can. You want to, you want to, um, you want to stop an army from moving forward? Well, you, what was Tokyo Rose? You know, she used to send broadcasts to the American soldiers in the Pacific Rim. Tokyo Rose mocking them, predicting their demise, the foolhardiness of their attack. Psychological warfare is to destroy morale, and, and they do it with mockery and with contempt. And here's Nehemiah. And he has sounded the charge, and there's so much enthusiasm moving forward, and then suddenly Sanballat mocks them, and he's very calculating. And here's what, here's what the enemy does. He preys on our insecurity. I don't care how confident you are, how much of a type A go-getter you are. Everybody is insecure in some way or another. And the devil likes to point out ways in which you are weak and vulnerable and to mock you right there to cause you to slow down and maybe to stop. Self-doubt, fear of failure, it's in each of us, paralyzing us. The devil tried that with Jesus, you know. Very interesting. Sometimes we just see Jesus marching through the Gospels and we forget how much pressure he was under. You have, um, just in the temptation in the wilderness, remember how Satan put it to Jesus? He says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now that word if, it's psychological warfare. Casting doubt. We read, we pass over these passages. You know, they, the, the enemies of Jesus insulted his mother. You can find that in certain places. Trash talking, insulting his mother. 
about his making comments about his birth. Psychological warfare. And it happens to the church. Jesus said, he, he, when he predicted this, he said, Blessed are you when people insult you. What, is, what are insults? Insults are psychological warfare, falsely saying all kinds of evil against you. And nobody likes to be insulted. I just made a list of words that are often thrown out against Christians. Some of these words I have heard personally. They've thrown them on me. And maybe, maybe they've thrown them on you. I've heard words like stupid. I heard the Secretary of State a couple weeks ago talk about people of, who, who have religion are allowed to be stupid. Mm. We've been, my wife has been characterized as dangerous. We've been called bigoted by the Hollywood elite. We are called weak. Weak by Friedrich Nietzsche and his followers. We are called intolerant by the comedians on the comedy channels. And even worse, what they do is they not only mock us, but they mock God. And Richard Dawkins writes his book, Write the God Delusion. And Christopher Hitchens writes his book, God is Not Great. I'm so proud of some of our teenagers in the church. They are willing to be identified with the Lord. And they're not ashamed, even when it means that their teachers might make fun of them. And we've had some of them testify in front of the church, saying how they're, they're willing to take it and they're happy uh, just they're, if, if they're made fun of because of Christ. And we can learn a lot from them. You see, they're not, Satan is not succeeding when they're willing, when you are willing to stand up for Christ. And you smile and you say, well, I'm blessed. I'm, I'm blessed. The, they said in the book of Acts, we're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So don't be surprised if the devil plays to your insecurities and fears. Now, secondly, there are physical threats you see this in verse 11. And the opposition uh, becomes coordinated. And you have Sanballat to the north, right? That's Samaria. Tobiah and the Ammonites. Ammon is on the east side. The Arabs, where are they? They're on the south side. And then the men of Ashdod, where are they? They are to the west. It sounds like they're surrounded. And they learn that they are plotting strategically. And they're plotting guerrilla warfare. This idea of people going into crowds and killing people, and suicide missions type, this is not new. It is a cruel and wicked way that the Middle East has known for centuries and centuries. You know, Jesus was threatened many times, not just at the end of his life, many times with bodily harm. And we read phrases like, and the crowd surrounded him and they wanted to throw him off the cliff, right? But Jesus passed through them. But, but the pressure was there, the intent to murder him. He lived with that threat of those plotting his death. And he suffered the ultimate physical abuse as he is murdered on the cross. 
And of course, these threats happen to the church throughout her history. They happen today. Did you hear in the news? In Lahore, Pakistan, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, a mob incited by a, a fight over a Christian and a Muslim were talking, and the Muslim accused the Christian of blaspheming Muhammad and blaspheming Allah. And then in the mosque, the mullah incited the crowd, and they went to this village, and they burned 150 homes of Christian people, burned their church. Did you hear about that? No, you probably didn't. I guess it didn't make the evening news. 150 people's homes devastated, destroyed. Two weeks ago, Boko Haram in Nigeria doing their evil work. Pastor Saeed Abidini, right, an American citizen in Iran, now arrested, has been beaten and with internal, suffering with internal bleeding, and we're waiting for the State Department to stand up and get involved in some way. But, but th- there are physical threats. But then in verses 4 through 12, and then in verse 16, J.I. Packer points out that it must have been very discouraging for Nehemiah. And I thought about this a lot this week. Because Nehemiah has just said in the end of, you know, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the hand of our God is with us. And they're marching forward with such good momentum. And they have the resources and the tactical skills and the strategic plan in place. And the people have embraced the vision. And then, boom, they get knocked on their rear end. I mean, they are really set back by this. And he has to take half his workforce, and make them guards. What's it like when you're managing a project and you lose half your workforce? My heart goes out to Nehemiah. He's got to, you know, when I think about the North Shore Community Church, I think of how many, how many of our dear friends in God's good providence have moved off of Long Island. You know, people who sat next to you. I think of Dennis and Betty Gagnon. They've moved. I think of Jack and Linda Shannon, and they've moved to Florida, of Sean and Jean Kirk, and they've moved to Texas, and David Chin, who moved down to, uh, North, to Virginia, and, and uh, Ben and Sharon Lee and their family who moved to New Orleans, and Galen Collins, who moved to Boston, and, and Lou and Ann Farrow, who've gone to Pennsylvania, and Todd and Andrea Christensen, who've moved uh, to Hong Kong, and Daniel and Florence Upong, who've gone uh, with Nina to, to Philadelphia, and... Um, the Somis and their big gaggle of teenagers who've gone to Tennessee. And we sent them off as missionaries. We sent them off with our hearts. But I can relate to Nehemiah. Losing partners for the work. And even those who are working still can only work with one hand because they've got to keep their sword in the other hand. But brothers and sisters, though there is personal discouragement, and though there are physical threats, and though there is psychological warfare, 
Nehemiah shows us how to respond. And he is a type for us, an image for us of Jesus Christ. And he says, verse 14, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And I love this phrase. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons and daughters. Fight for your wives and your homes. And you just take this apart and you see what he does here. The first thing he does, the best thing he does, is he says, look at the Lord. Remember the Lord and remember Him accurately. And what he does is he takes the attributes of God. When he talks about remembering the Lord, it's not some sort of blah, gray, buzzword. The attributes of God revealed in Scripture must accompany your memory, your knowledge of the Lord. He is great. He says, He is awesome. And we don't make a God up after our own imaginings, the vain imaginings of men that are condemned. We say, God, as you've revealed yourself, let us remember you. Remember Him accurately. And what we see right here is that persecution... And opposition is always an opportunity to depend on God. Is that true? Isn't that true? It's an opportunity to, de- to depend on God. Because maybe you're walking through life and you're feeling pretty comfortable and feeling pretty satisfied and f- feeling pretty confident. And God, God in His inscrutable wisdom says, I want you to depend on me, and I'm going to give you a good occasion to depend on me. And he does that. And so he says, he says, turn to God in faith. Verse 20 says, turn to our God who is great and awesome, for our God will fight for us. And we read earlier from Romans 8.31, if God is for us, how does that phrase end? Who can be against us? Every Christian should memorize that, shouldn't they? Shouldn't we all know this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you get discouraged? I know you do. Do we as a church sometimes get discouraged? I know we do. And so, (laughs) Nehemiah begs us to look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Where is that? That's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Do you know the passage there? Uh, Listen, Nehemiah does not say, look at me. And John Yenchko does not say, look at me. What does the Bible tell us? Hebrews 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author. I have it here for you. There it is. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now look, here's verse 3. is right back to Nehemiah chapter 4. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Yeah. Jesus suffered opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the way to respond. You remember the Lord. And, and I can't say it enough. 
the most important thing we do with our children, with each other, in our fellowship groups, in our Sunday school classes, in our sermons, the most important thing we do is to study God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Get to know Him. There's nothing more important than knowing God. And secondly, Nehemiah prays, and he is constant in prayer. He says in verse 9, but we prayed to our God. That's the first part of verse 9. And as we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, and you'll see again and again, he actually records for us his praying, his prayers. And it's always in the plural, and we prayed. Well, not always, but it's often in the plural. And we prayed. He's summoning the people to pray. I tell you what, we want to be a praying church. And I just want to remind you in April, we will have our week of prayer where we ask you to sacrifice your evenings for just one week, five nights, and come out five nights in a row and join us in prayer as we pray for the fullness of God's blessing on the church and the fulfillment of the Great Commission around the world. Come and join us. Come and pray. When's the last time you prayed for an hour and a half without stopping? Maybe it's been a while since you did that. You come out those nights, you will say, where did that 90 minutes go? That was fantastic. But Nehemiah calls the people to prayer, and they pray. As suffering and persecution lead you to dependence on God, don't forget to pray. Why is this? Because in the New Testament, we are told in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9, why the sufferings happen. It says, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on Him who raises the dead. Every time you are tempted to ask the question, why, Lord? Turn to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9, and you will get your answer. But this happened, so that you might not rely on yourself, but on Him who raises the dead. And he catapults us off of self-reliance onto God-reliance in prayer. And then look at the second part of this. The third thing he does uh, that Nehemiah does is he actually accepts the hardship and keeps on going. And you see this at the end of verse 9, but we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. He prayed and he posted a guard. He did both. And posting the guard is an act of faith. It's not an act of unbelief. It's actually an act of faith. We're going to move forward, and we're going to keep the work going. And I love this. And he keeps the work moving. And he, I, I love this pencil drawing. I don't know who did this one, but I love this one. There's the guy with the trumpet up on the wall, and they will sound the trumpet at the different stations along the wall. And one man has, has a spear, and another man has a trowel, and then another man has both a trowel and a spear. And, and they work. They keep the work going. And so it is in the church. So we get discouraged. So we have hard times. So we have struggles and, and uh, whatever comes our way. Wednesday night prayer meeting isn't going to stop. Home fellowship meetings aren't going to stop. Sunday school is not going to stop. Youth group is not going to stop. Our prayer gatherings is not going to stop. Our sermons will not stop. Lifting up Christ will not stop. 
Are you with me in this? It's not going to stop. We will keep it going. And I love verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Yes, yes, they did have some discouragement. But here's the point. He will get you through your persecution. He will get you through your trial. He will get you through to the other side. And when it comes to time for you to breathe your last, and you face the last enemy, the Bible calls death the last enemy, and the Bible calls death the great enemy. And when you face that enemy, he will see you through to the other side. How do you know? Let me tell you how you know. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they wanted to assassinate Nehemiah, and they failed. But Satan and his agents did assassinate one greater than Nehemiah. They did assassinate our Lord Jesus. They put him to death, a most cruel and terrible death, and he suffered And Satan shrieked with delight. The demons danced with delight, I'm sure, as Christ hung on the cross. And they thought they had won. But they did not. For it was there at the cross that he who was sinless took our sins upon himself. And the curse that we deserve is executed upon him. And as he is assassinated... Life comes to you and to you and to you and to me. Eternal life is ours through union with Jesus Christ. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ, today, well, today is a good day for you. If you've said, you know, I've been interested, I've had my toe in the water, today is the day to be all in so that you have assurance, so that you know that when you face that last enemy of death and as you experience trials in life, you will know He will see you through to the other side. Psalm 27. Nehemiah must have known Psalm 27. Do you know Psalm 27, the first four verses? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Nehemiah is building a fortress. It will surround Jerusalem and the people of God. What is your fortress? What is your fortress? Martin Luther wrote these words, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. 
our helper, He, amid the flood of mortal ills, He prevailing. Let us pray. Oh, our Father, we thank You that You and Your Son, our Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, You are our mighty fortress. We thank You for those Jewish men and women centuries ago who built that fortress, the wall around Jerusalem. But we say to You, You are our fortress. And we are safe when we are hidden in you. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I pray for any here today. We pray for each other that we would be a people who are confident, humbly confident, not cocky, not arrogant, not pugnacious, not, uh, not uh, obnoxious to the world, but that we would be confident. You are our fortress, and you will never fail us. Amen. Let's stand and sing with Martin Luther together.